welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today with me, I have Dr. Rand McLean, who is an expert in peptides and hormones, and I'm very excited to have him on the podcast because peptides are, are becoming a very, uh, they're becoming all the rage. <laughs> they're becoming a very popular topic, um, not just in the pharmaceutical world, but in the fitness world, in the athletic community, and in the longevity community. Anybody who is after optimization and not just surviving, but thriving, has probably heard of some of these things. And some of them seem too good to be true because they have so many amazing benefits with very little, if any, side effects, which makes you wonder, why aren't these things everywhere? Why aren't we all taking these different peptides? And there are some reasons for that, which we get into. Um, and they're not the same thing as steroids, which is why I think this is a really important podcast to do. I think a lot of times people put steroids and hormone replacement and peptides all under this one big umbrella and under this category. And it becomes this very dogmatic or dangerous thing that only bear, like, geared up bodybuilders use. But that's not the case. What we're talking about today is, is truly optimizing your life and living a longer life, a longer, more energetic, happier life where you have a better body, you have better health, you have better everything. We are optimizing your function and your immune system and your muscular potential. Um, and it is a very, very, very fascinating topic. Um, I have been going down rabbit holes of information on peptides and hormones and all this stuff because it is just a very fascinating thing. And for some people, it could potentially save their life, which is why I was so excited to get Dr. Rand McLean on because I've seen him and heard him on other podcasts. He is coming out with a book very soon called Cheating Death. And I think this, uh, this title describes it extremely well. And it is the science of living a longer and better life, which we will link in the description of this podcast so you can grab it. It is out this week on all the popular places. So you can head to Amazon, you can get your copy. Uh, but he's going to come on today and he's going to talk to us about this book. He's going to talk to us about what he does in his day-to-day -day life with his patients and why we should all be knowing about these things called peptides. Uh, you're really going to enjoy this podcast. I absolutely enjoyed this podcast with him. We're definitely going to have him back on to talk uh, all things hormones and hormone replacement therapy, because that's another rabbit hole we could easily go down for another hour with him. Um, so we're going to stick the, to, to peptides and his book specifically in this podcast. Make sure you check out all the links in the description because you will love his free content that's out there and you will absolutely love his book if you loved this episode. All right, without any further ado, let's talk to the one and only Dr. Rand. All right, Dr. Rand, as I said, I am extremely excited to have you on. Uh, I went down a rabbit hole of your content. I was... Uh, Starting to search uh, BPC-157 for myself, I've had multiple knee surgeries, and uh, this the peptides just fascinate me so much. So I started going into, you know, Google and YouTube, and your name just kept popping up. And, and then I started learning about stuff that I had no interest in at the time until I started listening to you talk. And I just kept going on and on. There's so much free content. Um, so I recommend people listening. Go to YouTube and search his name. You'll find so much. But um, I was excited to, to see that you were coming out with a book, which is what we're going to start by kind of bringing up and diving into some of the topics today, which has the perfect name, Cheating Death, which I think is an amazing way to frame this, this conversation. Uh, but before we get into that, can you just tell people a little bit, just briefly, who you are and, and why you specialize in what you specialize? Like why this, you know, hormone and peptide, like why that route and, and um, almost like preventing age and longevity enhancement, all this kind of stuff that you're so fascinated by. Um, what got you into that? Well, first, yeah, I'm just a doctor who got into it for, for selfish reasons, really, you know, partly because I was getting injured and I wanted to be the best I could be myself. And then I figured, uh, why not share some of the stuff I learned? You know, there was some confluence of events, like in so many people's life, I had to 
uh, buck up, you know, uh, being a parent to be at a, at a certain age. And I said, okay, well, I got to pick something I'm going to be steady with in terms of work. And so I really was on a drive across country. I said, what do you really want to do? And it's something I always considered, but kind of, I don't want to say I had chickened out, but I had a lot of other things I was interested in and just never got around to it. But I said, okay, let, you know, how about doctoring? And, uh, you know, again, from different angles, I got into it and, you know, regenerative medicine is not a specialty per se. It's not like internal medicine or family medicine or anything like that. I, I, I studied family medicine on purpose because you really can deal with an individual from bottom to top, as it were, you know, uh, pediatrics all the way to geriatrics. And I figured, you know, just get your arms around as much as you can. And then um, decided to specialize in optimizing health or improving health span, we call it. Not just longevity, staying around as long as possible, but being healthy while we're here. So that was a long answer to a short question, but that was the impetus behind the book. And by the way, yeah, peptides are one of my favorites. You know, the, 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 the Tinker Toy model is how I look at it. You can make so many different constructs and they all do something different that that to me is one of the most fascinating aspects of medicine coming up yeah so uh the book is called cheating death uh the new science of living longer and better which is basically what you just said that you have you know become obsessed with learning more and more about um and when i opened i got a, a, a digital copy from you guys to kind of review some of this stuff before our podcast the table of contents like holy shit man there's just so much in there that you covered it's it's amazing so um it was really hard for me to try to narrow down what i want to talk about today but as we talk we might have you back on to, to dive into more if we need to because it's such a big topic but um before we get into the specific um the different peptides and all those kind of things and even what, what peptides are for some of the people listening first and foremost why do you think it's so important for people to know about this like not just peptides but all of this stuff inside your book, all the different aspects of this science of living better and longer. So that they can take advantage of it. I mean, we have so many more ways to treat disease and prevent disease, probably even as important, if not more so. And to make, I mean, look, I mean, no matter what your beliefs are, you want to make the most of the time you're on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. So I just see so many people who have given up, uh, or are struggling uh, and haven't given up at all, but they don't know what the alternatives are available to them to, to either fix what needs fixing or to prevent it or just improve with life. I mean, there's a lot of people out there in midlife, for example, that, you know, don't have much of a sex life anymore. Don't exercise as much as they'd like to uh, largely because they don't have as much energy as they'd like to and don't have the body composition they want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's largely because of ignorance. And, you know, we're human. So you start seeing results, right? You know, with what you do, it's very motivating. So why not at least lead the horse to water, so to speak? And people can drink from it if they, if they want to or not. But it's frustrating to see so many people out there that want to enjoy greater health span, but don't know the avenues by which they can pursue it. Yeah. So getting into those avenues... And I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Uh, I'm very much so on. The, it's when I started digging into peptides, it was to me, it's very much so like one, why is this not more well known, which is something I want to get into soon. And I have some thoughts, but also um, why the hell wouldn't you like, I mean, it's almost like you can hand pick or create the perfect peptide to help you with blank. You know, it's, it's some of them almost seem too good to be true, which I want you to really kind of explain as well. But um, first of all, like what is a peptide for those listening? Like what are peptides? 
Well, there are different definitions, but I would say the most accepted is probably the one that says it's uh, 50 or fewer amino acids connected beyond which you consider it a protein. I think it's mainly semantics, but you know we have to categorize things sometimes. But it's uh, essentially a protein-based hormone. And they've been around forever. Insulin's a perfect example. Uh, but to the question you bring up, why don't we have more of them available? Some of it's speculation, as always, when you look back uh, historically, but uh, it wasn't the best avenue to pursue at the time is all I can say, whether it was for financial reasons or effectiveness or safety. The beauty of what we found out now is we can increase the, the half-life of some of these peptides, number one. Number two, we can test them more safely and therefore improve upon their safety profile. And what's really cool, and I know I'm jumping ahead, I can't help myself, cut me off if you want me to, but uh, with AI and stem cells, what we'll be able to do is come up with um, uh, assumptions, as it were, as to what will work. You know, we can, we can, we can come up with uh, structures based upon structures we already have. This is all using AI, which will facilitate things greatly. But then we can create, for example, a liver in a Petri dish, essentially, that kind of tissue, and test an enormous quantity of drugs well in advance of what we could do in testing humans bit by bit and going through different regulations, right? I mean, eventually we'll have to get to that. But you can screen and test so many of these in advance, come up with multiple ideas. And again, I say, like I'm pointing to my own head. I mean, the, the human's still going to be involved in, in, in directing AI, but I mean, you know, you're talking about logarithmic advances in, in this case, we're talking about peptides, but it could be for all kinds of drugs. Uh, and that's what makes it so exciting. I, 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 I outlined this very briefly, I think in the book, but uh, I can remember walking through CSUN in the physics department and seeing all these structures of peptides on the wall and thinking, you know, why are these up here? Because this is more medicine. And uh, then it hit me. I mean, the obvious, like, yeah, there's physics involved here and everything crosses over to one degree or another, but just the the enormity uh, of the, the the potential there is, is, is mind boggling, right? When you look at all these different structures and how uh, each one, just one ligand difference can make a huge difference as to the way it reacts once it goes in the cell and either just gets in the cell or goes to the nucleolus, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I, I sorry, I can, I can ramble about this forever, but, uh, you know, it, it's more than just the superficial obvious, I would say, you know, okay, well, we got all these peptides, we got so many different uh, variables to work with. Yeah, not only that, but we have these other leveraging factors that can make it something that is worth sticking around and fighting hard for another five years. If you've got a disease, for example, waiting for or a cure because mm -hmm. we're advancing very quickly. So you mentioned insulin as a peptide. Are there other common, um, I mean, there's like things that are in this category that I think of not, it's not, I don't know if they're necessarily peptides, but even like different thyroid medications, birth control, like these are hormonal based things. Um, yeah. I would all, I'd kind of put them all under the same umbrella in a sense. Uh, but are there more peptides out there that have been around that people don't, uh, don't realize are peptides. And it's just a matter of like, I, I've heard you use the Lincoln log example, right? They just haven't stacked the Lincoln logs in the right way. Lincoln logs being these amino acids to figure out how to use these in this way versus the insulin that we've used or thyroid medication or whatever. Um, 
if that makes sense. Is there other ones out there that people might actually know about? Well, you touched on the easy ones to, to, to look at first. You know, you mentioned hormones and you mentioned two different types, thyroid and uh, what, what, the other one you mentioned was... Birth uh, control. Right, which is uh, typically estrogen and progesterone or their derivatives. The first one, thyroid, like another one, growth hormone is a protein-based, so we're talking about peptide, amino acids again, hormone that the body makes naturally. And of course, we can make them some synthetically too, right? So we're using them every day, just like insulin. The other ones that you refer to, you know, progesterone, uh, estrogen, those are what we call the, the, the sex hormones because they include testosterone and estrogen. Uh, but those are actually, uh, you could argue those are fat-based. Those are cholesterol-based. Uh, and hence the term for those uh, hormones is the steroid group from the word cholesterol, right? Uh, so different hormones, but you know, uh, the peptides, uh, well, I don't want to get into to fine lines and stuff, but I, I would argue that, and I use the, instead of Lincoln log, which would be a great one too. It is, uh, but I, you know, like the tinker toys, right. You know, yeah, remember those things that uh, you're probably, doing, but you could, you know, you could poke it into different holes and mm -hmm. make all these different structures, really limitless structures. Um, but, um, I'm getting too far afield here. The uh, uh, the the hormones are a perfect example of of the peptides that occur naturally, and then we can uh, improve upon them, whether it's simply making their half life longer or making their effectiveness uh, greater. Yeah, the sky's the limit. So, the 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 question that I I've been kind of like rambling in my head. That there's two parts of this. Is like number one. Why aren't these more well-known? And part of me wonders if it's more of like a, the government doesn't know how to tax it kind of thing yet and not to go down that rabbit hole. But I even thought about that with, you know, being in Washington state, um, I believe California's this way too. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but marijuana is legal. And I remember like, it was like such a big deal when it happened, but then nothing really changed. It's just that, oh, the government figured out how to regulate and make money off this. Now it's legal. Everybody's still fine. It's just, just weed. And it, it wasn't a big deal. So to me, part of it's like, well, if insulin is normally prescribed to diabetics, that's a common thing. And uh, now TRT is very common, but um, thyroid medication has been around and, and birth control has been around. Like, why aren't peptides more common? And then also, why do certain ones get categorized as bad versus the other ones? So like if birth control is hormonal at times and if thyroid medication is hormonal, but those are totally fine, yet people kind of get weirded out when talking about testosterone replacement therapy because it's a steroid all of a sudden, or even some of these peptides because you're not maybe even fixing something, but you're just optimizing something. And, and I think sometimes people can get a weird feeling about it, which I don't understand, but what are your thoughts on all of that? Like, is, do you think that's about why and people just don't have enough understanding on it yet? Or, or what is it? That could be an hour conversation right there. I don't know if you realized <laughs> how many points you just harped upon uh, in that uh, we'll call it a question because yeah i mean a lot of it i can only speculate on if i want to go down a rabbit hole and get depressed i can try and get my head uh, around you know the motives behind some of this and i think one of the things you mentioned uh is, is appropriate though and and i think definitely part of the picture in that there's a lot of misunderstanding when you talk about steroids a lot of people really jump to anabolic steroids which is not the same thing again mm -hmm. steroids made from cholesterol are abundant naturally made testosterone estrogen progesterone dhea pregnenolone these are all naturally occurring steroids as is by the by the, by the way vitamin d 
which we misnamed back, I think, in the uh, late 1800s. And so we still keep the name vitamin, but it's a, it's a steroid hormone too. But people equate that whenever you say steroid, they think of an anabolic steroid, which is synthetic. Uh, well, they're all synthesized now. We're not robbing graves to get testosterone from humans' testicles or anything, but uh, it's a natural, uh, you know, those are naturally occurring, whereas anabolic are not. They, they're anabolic steroids are, are man-made, so to speak. Uh, and they act differently and they can have some negative side effects if not used properly. Uh, nothing like what's created out there. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll take a chance here and you can cut me off or just edit it out later. But for example, one of the things that doctors still look at is they go, okay, well, particularly with an oral steroid, let's see what happens to the AST and ALT. And those are considered by most to be liver enzymes. Okay. Well, yeah, but there's many other reasons why those two could be elevated. Uh, and I'll leave you hanging for a second, one of which is pretty obvious. Um, and also, the they look at the effect that all anabolic steroids have on the lipids, meaning the cholesterol, right? So your so-called bad LDL cholesterol goes up and your so-called good, uh, and that's a whole other topic. I, I'm saying so-called on purpose, but the HDL goes down while you're on the anabolic. When you get off of the anabolic steroid, they will re-equilibrate as will the AST and ALT uh, elevations. But guess what also elevates AST and ALT quite frequently? Muscle tissue turnover. Mm. Well, when you're on, on an anabolic steroid, particularly if you're an older uh, person who typically would be a, a better candidate for, you got somebody who's 70 years old and, and you know, is at a fall risk, for example, because they're not strong enough to get around or they're getting, you know, recovering from a hip surgery or something they're going to have more muscle turnover. So you're going to see this elevation and doctors are assuming uh, that that's because of liver uh, taxation. You know, you're, 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 you're breaking down. I mean, it happens from the, the liver doing its job. The cell lyses and it, it expels these, uh, these enzymes into the bloodstream. Well, if you get something called a GGT, which is specific to organs, including liver, pancreas, uh, biliary tract, I mean, it can affect, it could be elevated from even GI inflammation. Uh, but then you can separate that, right? So if you've got elevated AST, and typically it's ALT, but it can be sometimes both. Uh, but typically ALT gets elevated from muscle tissue turnover like that, the breakdown of it. But the GGT is within normal limits or nice and low. What does that tell you? Is that the liver breaking down an organ that would that would show an elevated GGT? Or is it muscle tissue breaking down? So I guess I should have explained up front that uh, we normally don't look at GGT, at least in the labs I've grown up seeing. Uh, AST and ALT are ubiquitously found as part of a comprehensive medical, uh, sorry, metabolic panel that's been around for God knows how many years. It just comes with the panel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a GGT is not. And so you look at these and you jump to a conclusion and you make some some statements that aren't necessarily applicable. And so you get this particular substance, you give it a bad name. It gets tainted from a, an assumption that really wasn't proven, uh, you know, up front. And then, yeah, you could also wonder, I mean, this is where you just, yeah, like you are, you, you start wondering, you just go, okay, this is going to drive me nuts. Why is it that you could, uh, get, um, or let's just say on the schedule itself, why, why is it that uh, estrogen is not considered a controlled substance, but testosterone is? Ditto for progesterone versus testosterone. 
I don't know where they come up with that because, for example, testosterone can be converted to estrogen. Mm -hmm. That's typically our main source, whether you're male or female for estrogen. So, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. your guess is as good as mine. Why some of these things are handled the way they are and scheduled that way. But, you know, um, I, I like to stay optimistic and presume it's all from a place, you know, of good intentions. But, yeah, I, I couldn't explain it any better than, than you could. Yeah, and I think it's good that people like you are willing to come on podcasts like this and you're coming out with this book because it does get more and more of the science-based information in the hands of everyday people who wouldn't otherwise know any better besides reading a headline from whatever news channel they follow or whatever site they go on or whatever guru on Instagram. So it's really helpful when you see people like you putting out so much content and then coming out with a book about it. So, um, which I want to dive into each, uh, not every single peptide. I think there's hundreds of them, but, uh, maybe more. And, uh, but we'll start with uh, a really popular one and kind of go through, especially because we just got done talking about why are these not a thing. And BPC one five seven is one of those ones that I've, I, I've consistently sat there and thought like, why is this not more, you know, as somebody who has gone through two knee surgeries and the second one was the same injury as the first one. And I've been through rehab and I've coached clients that are athletes and everyday people that have gone through injuries. My dad had a double hip replacement. Like I've seen a lot of this stuff and it's never brought up or recommended in the, in the situation by PT or by doctors or by pharmacists or anything. Yet it's like this wonder drug that has from what I know, no side effect and can dramatically improve the healing process. So I'll let you explain what it actually does and if there is any side effects. Um, but I think this is a good one to start with since we're talking about like, how are these not more well-known? So what is BPC-157? What does it do? Well, it's made uh, in the gastrointestinal tract and can help heal the gut lining. But what we typically use it for is for healing ligaments and tendons. Um, there are uh, numerous animal studies showing that it can repair same. And of course, there's uh, a boatload, like you've experienced, of, of anecdotal reports of it helping. And long before, you know, it, I wouldn't call it necessarily mainstream at this point, but more and more people know about BPC-157. Long before it became famous, uh, athletes have been using it. I mean, at least a decade ago. I mean, I remember the the different protocols where instead of going directly into the tendon initially, we would do make this triangle, right? So we would go this side of it two, and then that side of it one, and then that was in the morning, and then in the evening you would flip it. Okay, now we know we can directly uh, inject the tendon or the ligament and get sometimes even better results. Uh, depends on the size of the needle, the injury itself, et cetera, et cetera. But um, uh, BPC one five seven. Uh, probably the reason why it's not as well known is why a lot of these are not well known. And again, I, I really sincerely mean this when I think it comes from a, a good place, scientific rigor, you know, the scientific method proving that it works. Um, you know, it's very easy to, to draw a correlation and jump. Oh, wow. Okay. I did this and that's what happened. But it's also, you know, we've proven time and time again, we make a lot of mistakes that way. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, in, in your arena, you know, I mean, uh, there's a guy in the gym that has huge biceps, right? He's got the worst form in the world when he does bicep movements. But everyone in the gym is imitating because they go, well, he's, that's what he's doing, right? So, and he's got huge biceps. Well, yeah, but probably most of that was because of the way he chose his parents, mm -hmm. obviously, because he's doing it the wrong way. Anyone else does it. They don't have the same biceps, right? Yeah. And if they do it you know, with their genetics and they, they do it with proper form, 
they do uh, get better gains than when they pro- follow his form. So you get my my point. Yeah. And so uh, we haven't set up enough um, studies to prove that it works well in humans. Now, prove in the sense of what is the gold standard, you know, with real true scientific rigor. That's a function in large part that is financial. You know, you go through the NIH, a lot of uh, academia to get funded, and that is a nightmare. And it's also very competitive. So you've got people fighting amongst one another rather than cooperating with one another, right? Because we're fighting for the same funds. And that creates another obstacle that slows the process down. Beyond that, I mean, you know, I'm pretty certain that those are two major factors and and probably sums up most of it. But there are other factors involved, I'm sure, that I don't know about or I'd only be speculating about. But I don't think it's a, a conspiracy so much as just the way it's set up part of it a good part of it is for for good reason you know we don't want to do something that's going to hurt you yeah first do no harm has been you know our tenant for forever right since hippocrates um we're finding ways to reduce that uh that standard not not in the sense of okay we're, we're not trying to make sure we have the best evidence possible but you know, in terms of the safety part where we go, okay, there's no way, or there's certainly less chances this could hurt, particularly people that are ill. I mean, through the Trump administration, one benefit of that was uh, the right to, like, the right to try. Uh, if you've got an illness that is uh, terminal or you're suffering a lot with, we bypass some of the safety standards because you go, come on, man, you know, what have I got to lose here? I'm dead anyway in a year. So let me try that. Yeah. And that makes sense. I think we'll find a greater balance between the two down the road. And I think that'll speed some processes up. But I go back to what I said earlier. Part of how we're going to speed that up is we won't have to do human testing from the start. We'll have some safety data that's not animal based either. It's in a Petri dish mm-hmm. and we'll be able to speed things up a lot faster that way, I think. And then you'll hear more about PPC before, you know, it just goes to the circles in the gyms, for example. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think, too, I guess um, one thing I was not thinking of or ignorant to is that uh, it might also go in the order of operations of what's most important for curing disease, preventing death versus let's speed up the injury of an athlete's knee ligament. You know what I mean? Like, and I get it. So there's obviously a line of that's such a great point. You're right. You know, I, I didn't even I didn't enter that into it, but you're right. And unless it was something that was exceptionally profitable, mm-hmm. right? You could see there wouldn't be much leverage there to advance it. That's a great point you make. Yeah, it's not at the top of everyone's list, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I can think of one that uh, comes up uh, daily in practice: herpes, right? The herpes virus. What people think of as you know oral and genital herpes, herpes one, herpes two. Uh, that's something that's ubiquitous, but no one's dying from it necessarily. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not true. You can, uh, but it's rare. Yeah. You know, and, but it's everywhere. But, you know, we haven't come up with a bunch of fixes for that any more than we come up with a bunch of fixes for for the common cold. Right. Uh, but we are working very diligently to try and cure, you know, various forms of cancer yeah. because they can take it out. So you make a great point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing I want to point out that you did say, too, and then I'll ask a follow up question with it is, is that uh, this is uh, it comes from the gastrointestinal so your gut essentially and the reason i want to point that out is because i think one of the cool things about peptides um and, and i'm saying this just in case people didn't put two and two together but you mentioned amino acids you mentioned it's it's already created in us it's almost like we already have it but maybe our body's not making these connections and we need to take these amino acids and make the connections 
ourselves in the lab or synthetically so that we can utilize them properly. And I think that's a really cool thing about these. And it's also probably one of the reasons why they're a safer route to optimize different aspects of your life. Um, but to, to carry off that, I also just want to ask before we move on to the next peptide is like, how is this actually working? Like that is an extremely fascinating thing to me. This, this BPC 157, what is it actually doing that to regenerate tissue or fix tendons? Do we even know that? Or are we just shooting it in and crossing our fingers and we're like, it's, it's fucking working. Let's yeah, keep no, doing I, it. <laughs> that's above my pay grade to give you the actual physiology behind it. Uh, my guess is that it's actually uh, documented somewhere, at least theoretically, how it works, uh, because it's it has been around for a while. Uh, you know, the substance is naturally occurring, mm -hmm. but no, I couldn't tell you uh, the exact uh, physiology behind it. Like, you know, is it is it going in and telling the cell to make more uh, collagen or anything? I, I don't know how it yeah. works exactly. I it, tell you. Is Above the my pay grade. is the t tendon itself just re? I mean, like if the process of this injury, this tendon regenerating or like coming together takes three months is with BPC-157, it takes a month. Like what is the, um, what do you see when you give it to somebody, for example? That's a tough one too. And I don't mean to dodge your question, but it, it's kind of loaded because it depends upon the degree of injury you're dealing with mm. and which, for example, ligament. So ACL and PCL ligaments are almost impossible to heal unless the patient is willing to be laid up for a minimum probably of eight weeks, right? Because think about it. Every time they take a step, otherwise, they're it's almost like they're ripping the scab off as soon as there's one developed, if at all. Right. Uh, whereas you know, uh, maybe a, a bicep tendon would be easier to work with because someone could be more careful in in mobilizing it or mobilizing it less. So that's kind of hard to to discern. Uh, some some ligaments and tendons, and they are very different. They're very different in their nature. But uh, they're both notable for the fact that they don't get much in the way of blood flow, particularly ligaments. So, um, yeah, I mean, if I had to really broad stroke it, I would say uh, from what I've seen uh, with a, uh, again, how do you characterize it, the degree of injury? If it's simply, um, you know, not tendinosis versus tendinitis, meaning it's not chronic, it's, it's acute tendinitis. Uh, you might increase the healing time, say threefold, uh, which is significant if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, but man, that's such a broad stroke. It, it really, again, I don't mean to dodge your question. It's just hard to evaluate. And of course, the poisons in the dose or the effectiveness is in the dose. Uh, if a patient's willing to inject into the area or surrounding, um, for example, we use it to help heal the gut and you can take it internally, orally, or you can uh, inject it subcutaneously. Very different uh routes and therefore you know uh speeds with which you're going to get healing so I, I can't i'm trying to get my arms around to answer the question but i, I don't think i can for no, that. that's good i think uh my, my main uh, hope was just to for people to understand like it's speeding up the process you know if we just say it helps injuries it's very vague but it's the same thing if people ask questions for the podcast when we do q a's and they'll say uh, what's the best diet for me to lose fat? And I'm like, well, can I ask you 30 questions about yourself, your age, your life, your training, your history? You know, it's your genetics. Just to start with. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So <laughs> um, I totally understand that. And I think the the main point again is, and this is why if, if it's speeding up acute injuries threefold, that's why it's probably been popular in the athletic world is because if you're injured and you're in off season, you only have so much time to get ready for competition. You know, it's going to help you. It's going to speed up. Um, and I think that's great. So, Moving into some of these other ones, uh, I'm going to categorize these three together. You can 
if you can just kind of define them all differently. Um, I'm categorizing because I think they kind of have the same, same end goal or the same reason people take them, but I don't know enough about these, but I wrote down uh, semaglutide, I believe it is, semorolin and ipamorolin. So what are these? These are three ones I see often talked about online when discussing peptides. Um, what are these and, and why would somebody be taking these? So these are all three are peptides, but the semaglutide is fairly recently popularized. It goes by the brand Wagovi, Azimpic, uh, Monjoro. Uh, uh, and that, that one is very different. That one is helping lower blood sugars. And it's, uh, I think Wagovi, that brand, uh, same substance, but that brand has been officially designated a weight loss drug. And people go, well, that's no big deal. There's plenty of those. No, there aren't. It'll be, it's the first one. There are weight loss tools. Fentermine is considered a weight loss drug in the sense that it it, it reduces your appetite. But mm -hmm. this semaglutide, these actually these these various brands uh, actually help you lose weight. Now there's some caveats to that. Now I'll, I'll just drill a little deeper here with this one since we have a moment. But uh, the problem is you can you can you know, we just said we lose weight. So someone uh, who doesn't do much, rides a desk all day, barely does more than fog a mirror, right? And uh, they can lose 15% of their body weight. That's pretty impressive, right? However, as you know, that's kind of a tricky uh, uh, statement. Body weight. Well, what does that mean? Are you losing muscle? Are you losing fat? Um, what we found uh, so far, and it's been around since I believe 2018. I think that's when I first heard about it. I didn't start writing scripts for it until 2022. And for a simple reason, you don't want to be the first, right? You want to wait a while, see what happens. But so far, it looks like the data we've collected uh, shows that you're still typically, and I'm generalizing, uh, and particularly if you exercise and do all the right stuff, going to lose more fat than muscle. But it may not be appropriate for people who don't do that or can't do that for whatever reason to just lose body weight, right? If it's If it's mainly... You know, what little muscle you have left if you're one of those skinny fat people or, you know, skinny obese people, as they might say. So semaglutide is a different category altogether. It's considered, it was originally considered as a diabetic drug, but we found that it also helps people lose uh, weight. The other two you mentioned are what we call growth hormone secretagogues. And semorlin was, I believe, the absolute original. Uh, it was known as Jeriff. Dr. Richard Walker, a friend of mine, uh, was involved in developing that one. And uh, very short acting, but it was used to help treat dwarfism. Uh, but we found that uh, it was only marginally helpful because there are different forms of dwarfism, not taking anything away from somorlin. But one of the great side effects of somorlin is that it can create a somnolence so that not only are you getting some, uh, some more growth hormone release during uh, the nighttime, but you're getting through the night with better sleep. So that one's still around, still works. We've, I, I think we, you could argue there are sort of some advancements um, that are worth considering, like Tessamorlin is, uh, I, would, I would say, an upgrade to that drug. Uh, Samorlin is generic. Tessamorlin is not um, uh, yet, um, but I would argue more effective. It's got a longer half-life. Epamorlin is also a growth hormone uh, secretagogue, and... Um, uh, this one, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to say something about this without talking about all the other ones, but there are advantages and disadvantages to various growth hormones for You haven't mentioned ibutamorin, CJC 1295, 
some of them can make you know briefly some of them can can work through a pathway called ghrelin which tends to make you hungry it's the same pathway that anyone who's ever smoked marijuana knows can give you the munchies mm. right so that's a drawback if you're using <laughs> growth hormone uh secretagogues to get leaner right which is one of the reasons why uh one of the reasons why uh, you want to take it at bedtime so that you fall asleep before you get hungry but also because you do want to take it generally speaking at bedtime because you're trying to accentuate your body's natural production of growth hormone, which most of that occurs uh, during the nighttime. And typically, particularly for adults, uh, right after you fall asleep, when you, you, you're most likely to go into deep sleep. Um, so that's, a, I guess, a, a brief primer on, on, on those three. Uh, Let, yeah, let's, uh, I don't want to stop you from going on tangents with these. I'd love you to. So um, growth hormone secretagogues. What is that? And then if you want to kind of elaborate, I know there's probably multiple, but like whatever ones are most commonly used by yourself or others in the, in the, in your profession. Um, and, and just taking into consideration, most of the people listening are looking to be leaner, live longer, have better hair, skin, like, you know, a lot of the stuff that your natural growth hormone production can help with. But if our growth hormone is low, I'm assuming these help our natural production speed up. It's not a, uh, it's not where like an anabolic steroid, you take it and it's a, like a synthetic version that could potentially suppress your own growth hormone, right? This is something that I would actually lift your growth hormone up and it, there's no like long-term negative effect to it. That's what it looks like. And that's, uh, we get again, credit Dr. Walker, uh, with his studies with Samorlin such that, uh, and it depended upon the individual, but roughly, let's say a year, year and a half's worth of use of Samorlin, which as you mentioned, is telling your pituitary to make more more growth hormone okay rather than suppressing it because you're providing the growth hormone exogenously uh after a certain amount of time you uh, the fancy word we use is you've recrudesced the gland you've you've sort of brought it back in time and in, in terms of function so that it requires less of a nudge from these growth hormone secretagogues to do the same job and so uh for example if, if for let's say you went on a trip and uh, it's to Costa Rica. And there's no refrigeration where you're going. Well, you're not going to take your your Samorlin with you. Well, you won't see a, a huge drop off in IGF one, which is what we use as a surrogate marker for growth hormone, because your body's working fine. You've 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 again recreated that gland, and it won't be like you're starting from zero. You'll gradually start to decrease your your own production uh, because it's not stimulated as much uh, because of the lack of Samorlin. But it won't be a severe drop off like it would be more likely if you were using exogenous growth hormone and somehow stop for, you know, two weeks or whatever it was. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's very safe in that regard. And, yeah, you're you're improving your own function rather than uh, reducing it. So that, that that's I think that's a big consideration when you have the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. As opposed to I'm just saying something like. Uh, when you've got, for example, what we call primary hypogonadism, where you can't get the gonads to produce testosterone, your only choice is replacement, mm -hmm. right? You can't coax the testicles into making more or the, or the ovaries into making more. So thank God we have that choice. But if we had the opportunity to get them to 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 bump up their production, we would. And we do when when it's appropriate in something what we call uh, secondary hypogonadism. Okay. Anyway, I know that's kind of an aside, but. Yeah, no, 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 that helps too. Um, is there is there any reason why the body would, uh, I'm just thinking of like your lifespan in general, is there any reason why the body needs to stop producing 
growth hormone? Because I, I, I would assume some people would listen to like, well, that's just the natural life cycle. There's got to be a reason why it produces less. And, and <laughs> I think we could probably argue this with most hormones. Like, even if that's true, it's probably happening too soon because of the, you know, the world and the society's health is just not where it probably should be. Um, but from just a safety perspective, I just wanted to bring that up because I know that would be a question. Is there any reason why we shouldn't do this because your body's supposed to produce less growth hormone as it ages? First of all, I got to throw in what I throw in half to get a laugh out of you, but half because I'm very serious. It's natural or normal to get sick and die one day. So who cares if it's naturally, you know, getting reduced as you get older? I, that's not a good starting point as far as I'm concerned. We're looking for optimization. Okay. So, uh, uh yeah, let, let, let's start there. And then, you know, there's a lot of debate about this, uh, um, I'm terrible with names, but we have a gentleman over here who has the, uh, the tailored, uh, fasting approach, uh, pro, pro, prolon, uh, and he'll argue that, uh, you know, IGF one is bad for you. Uh, sorry. You know, again, IGF one is a uh, surrogate mark for growth hormone mm -hmm. because growth hormone only lasts a system of about 30 minutes. Uh, it goes round and round and passes through the liver. And the liver makes IGF-1, which has a much longer half-life. So we can measure that as opposed to waking you up at 2 in the morning. See, well, how much growth hormone do you have at this time? Which would be total guesswork as to whether or not we got you at the right time or not. So right. you can understand why we do that. But anyway, he argues, well, I'd also add that IGF-1 does a lot of the yeoman's work, too, that you know growth hormone gets credit for and IGF-1 is actually doing. But anyway, that aside, um, uh, you know, the argument is based upon uh, observations, uh, correlations. And my argument against jumping to that conclusion is that, okay, well, if most of your population are desk jockeys, okay, then why do they need growth hormone necessarily? Okay. And there's a lot that goes sub to this that has to do with the body's repair mechanisms. I'm not talking about the mechanisms by which you think of, okay, I'm going to repair muscle tissue. I'm talking about the repair in terms of resetting inside the cell, the process of making sure the DNA is not, not corrupted, getting rid of cells that don't work anymore. The, let's call it the, the, the tuning up of the cell, okay, to make it easy, something we call autophagy. But there's also something that involves, and I, I promise I'll stop after this before I go any deeper, but you know, mTOR, and, and the complex is mTORC1 uh, and, and mTORC2 uh, that are involved. And we haven't got it all figured out yet, um, but, I would argue that someone like you who's living up in, in Washington, freezing your fanny off for half the year, right? Uh, and working out hard in, in the cold and the wet, uh, you know, active, in other words, could use the regenerative potential of growth hormone. And it wouldn't uh, be an issue. Uh, it would be, it would definitely, any risks would be outweighed by the benefits. In other words, whereas someone who is, you know, ride a desk all day and doesn't work out, et cetera. What good is it doing to activate mTORC1, which is linked, you know, very definitely physiologically to uh, a lack of this sort of necessary repair in the cell uh, if they don't need the regenerative potential? They're sitting at a desk. How do they need more help with their tendons? Let me stop there. And does that make sense so far? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely does. Um, okay. So, so for you and me, let's say, cause I would argue you're active. I'm active. Uh, letting the IGF one creep up or maybe actually accentuating it might make a lot of sense. You're an oil uh, rig worker. Yeah, man, you're working your butt off. You're fishing in, you know, for, for, for salmon in Alaska all summer. That's a good time. 
to to bump up your your IGF one, your growth hormone, but maybe not so much. Uh, you know, like I said, if you're re- relatively sedentary, and then you go into, well, is this something you would do all year round? Which I think was implicated by what I just said, or do you do it in periods where you're working harder than most? And do you do it during different periods of your life? You might say, well, it's definitely worth it more so if there's any risk to elevate my growth hormone when I'm 70 and 80, maybe not so much when I'm 30. Right. And certainly when I'm 30 and sitting around a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I think going back to the the risk outweighing the reward or the reward outweighing the risk, um, some of this comes back to quality of life too. Like, you you know, if, if this is helping somebody be more lively and build more muscle and push themselves harder and actively stay motivated to get after it in the gym and exercise and eat healthy, whatever it may be. To me, that's where all the rewards come up and outweigh the risk. If there is even a risk, because it sounds like for the most part, it's not doing anything to your natural production anyway. It's just helping you when necessary to keep your growth hormone elevated enough to see the benefits. Well, I like the way you put that because I'm not convinced that we have evidence that it is necessarily a risk. Uh, you could argue there are definite situations where it is a risk, but just for the average person with no identified comorbidities such as cancer, mm. right? Where you would not want to use growth hormone. I, I, I had a patient uh, in his 80s and he had a history a decade earlier of, of having um, uh, malignancies, skin, skin cancer. And, uh, you know, for various reasons, he was he was competing, you know, in his master's events and he wanted to improve his, his strength and he wanted to strengthen his ligaments and tendons. Well, we put him on a surgogue and sure enough, uh, after a trip to the dermatologist, uh, not unremarkably, you know, his his skin cancers have gotten worse. Now, again, that's an end of one, you know, one person and uh you know, we didn't do a lot of investigating. It wasn't a controlled experiment where you got the sun, you know, that year more so. And therefore, was that the problem? But based on what we know about the physiology, yeah, duh. It's not the best idea. It would definitely, you know, theoretically and most probably was uh, a, a problem that would lead to, you know, exacerbating his, his propensity to, to, to getting skin cancer. So there's some obvious ones there, but I don't think, you know, um, it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think we've proven that. Right. Um, I, lo- I love the breakdown of all these that we're going through and, and I want to still be able to squeeze in a couple more, but um, I just want to point out too, that I think part of the reason why it's so hard for people to grasp on this is because every time you say growth hormone, we're going to think drugs and steroids. Anytime you say testosterone, people are going to think drugs and steroids and bodybuilders who abuse it from the black market and end up dying because their heart and organs grow and, that's not what this is referring to. Um, and if you're not watching this, he's in a white lab coat. He is a doctor. He is a professional. This is a completely different world, which is again, why I love that you're actually doing free content so often because not that many people in your position actually take the time to do this stuff, which is why it's so unbelievably beneficial. Um, I do want to, uh, still quickly touch on, um, some of those other growth hormone segregate. C- 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 Say it for me one more time. They are. I just say peptides. That's it. They're all one big category to me. Um, so Samorlin and, and Ipamorlin and, and I think you said Tessamorlin. These all are these. They're all essentially doing the same thing. They're all just increasing growth hormone related aspects of your body so that you end up. Um, I mean, 
growth hormone can help a lot of different things. Obviously, like your skin, it can help hair, it can help muscle, and, and obviously fat loss, and I'm assuming testosterone and things like that as well. Um, are they all kind of doing the same thing in different ways, or do certain ones kind of lean more towards like, oh, we're talking body composition, let's go this way. Oh, we're talking like skin, nail, hairs, like let's go towards this one. Or, or like, what is the difference between these? That's a good question. For, for the things you mentioned, no, there's really no difference in terms of effect. But uh, for the record, there is ibutamorin, which is a what we call a peptidomimetic. Talk about a long word that's overly complicated. It just means it acts like a peptide, but it's not a peptide. Mm. Uh, it works through a different mechanism, the ghrelin mechanism to, to create growth hormone as opposed to smorlin, which works through uh, the it's a growth hormone releasing hormone, which is this, you know, what we call more the standard pathway. So other than that, though, it, you're, you're getting to the same result and growth hormone is growth hormone. And yeah, you mentioned, for example, uh, for fat loss. Yeah, every cell, every fat cell has a growth hormone receptor. And when the growth hormone hits that cell, that receptor, it's the cell is going to release some of those, you know, fats as fatty acids. And that's really what it's for. Again, getting back to the name, just kind of as a side note here. People think of growth hormone with bodybuilders. Oh boy, he's trying to get big and grow. No, growth and growth hormone really refers to the growth of long bones and some organs and stuff as we as we uh, as we age up until the point of roughly twenty six. I think we agree on statistically roughly that's you know when you stop growing your long bones. But afterwards, in adults, uh, it tends to make you lose fat. And, and bodybuilders, uh, while they're keeping their muscles hydrated, certainly with with uh, growth hormone. Uh, there's not much in the way, certainly compared to testosterone or, or, or specifically an anabolic steroid, even more so. Uh, they're not creating muscle tissue with growth hormone so much as they're just getting lean with growth hormone. And by the way, that brings up something I think you said earlier about uh, what was the reference you made about? Uh, yeah, growing organs and, mm -hmm. and, and dying because of that. Um, that's also uh, a lot of, I don't want to call it propaganda, but mainly mythology, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at some of these guys that, will freely admit to using, and it's obvious they, they do, uh, using excessive amounts of growth hormone for bodybuilding and cosmetic purposes. Um, if that were the case, then once they stop, they would be walking around with these huge bellies and, and uh, you know, organs protruding or whatever, right? Uh, that's not the case. You look at uh, Dorian Yates, for example, who freely admits to what he did. I mean, he doesn't have you know his, his liver and, and kidneys sticking out or anything like that, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a lot of mythology that, that's involved there while it does promote the growth of organs and to some degree it would, right. Uh, and you wouldn't want it to, to affect the heart to, to too much of a degree. And that's the case for sure, but not to the degree people think, Yeah, you know, in the legend out there. Right. I just want to make that point because, uh, you know, again, in the interest of using these things properly for the people that would benefit from them right? Not misuse them and, and then, you know, uh, potentially have a problem. Uh, we we want to get to the bottom of this, right? The truth of the matter. And then the other thing I want to say too is, you know, you read about people dying and it's associated with whether it's anabolic steroids or growth hormone or whatever it might be. A lot of times you don't hear the full story. I would say most often you don't. Now, uh, even if they were my patients, I wouldn't be able to speak to you about it. But most of the people I just know because I happen to be out here in, you know, Southern California and I work out at the Mecca Gold's Gym, you mm -hmm. know, where a lot of these guys that end up uh, unfortunately dying are, are, are 
uh, working out. And, you know, you hear half the tale. You hear what the press wants to, to tell you, which is, oh, yeah, obviously they were on anabolic steroids and now they're dead. Well, they don't tell you that also there was a lot of recreational drug use involved there. Uh, we all know that cocaine tends to promote atherosclerotic plaque buildup, just as an example. Uh, that's rampant in, in the gym, as is uh, the use of something called Nubane. Uh, and, you know, again, without naming names, I mean, I know of one individual who was complaining of chest pains for three years. But for whatever reasons, you know, a lot of these bodybuilders, for example, don't want to go to the doctor because they're going to get an earful. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be taking that stuff and you're this, that and the other. So they, 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 they don't go. And uh, yeah, they, and they don't take care. I'm thinking of one individual that don't tear, take care of their teeth. And, you know, the inflammation seeds in the heart, they grow plaque and yeah, they die of a heart attack. Yeah. No surprise there. Just like anybody in America would, you know, mm -hmm. now anabolic steroids will increase your so-called bad cholesterol. And that's a, an exacerbating uh, feature, but you know, you could also look at somebody who smokes and does everything else similarly, you know, and they'd have the same effect. So it's not, Oh, well, anabolic steroids are bad or bodybuilding right. drugs are bad. It's, in the context yeah. what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. And, well, and I think that, um, I don't know uh, too much about that realm, but I do know that a lot of just general folk will be, if they're watching the news or they read something and it says steroids, they literally most time assume one thing. They were taking a steroid. And it's like, no, if a, a pro a Mr. Olympia bodybuilder was taking steroids, he has a whole, <laughs> a whole bucket full of different things that he's combining together. It's, it's, it's a science experiment, you know, and, uh, and I've been to Mr. Olympia multiple times. Like it's, it's fascinating. I've always followed bodybuilding. I have friends that use, I personally don't, but it's not as simple as just taking one thing. And I think that's the difference too, with even just taking, um, one star and even some are prescribed, right? Like obviously TRT and stuff like that, but even I believe, uh, Xanderlone and things like that are prescribed at times, but usually, um, and any peptide that is growth promoting, uh, growth hormone promoting, it's one thing. They're taking one thing to do this. So I think, I definitely think it's different when it's not a cocktail of, of combinations, uh, but to bring well, it. I'm not going to extreme either. Uh, these, these, these ones that are using it properly, right? When you've got it, uh, and with all due deference and, and again, as a registered libertarian, if this is what these guys want to do, God bless them. But when you're that huge, okay, it's not good for you yeah. any more than yeah. some who abuses food mm -hmm. to become obese. That ain't good for you either. Both individuals are obese in different ways, but whatever the case, it's too much of a load on the body. It's too far into the super physiologic realm. Yeah. And that contributes to That's such a good point. It's such a good point. And, and I remember the first, I went to, uh, when I went to Mr. Olympia and saw them in person, it's, it is literally, you see it more cause you're in the Mecca. We don't have those kind of guys out here in Washington, but I mean, you know, they're big and then you go and you're like, holy shit, these guys are monsters. And it's interesting. I ran into Ronnie Coleman at the IHOP there and obviously he's not the way he was back then. So it's, it's pretty wild to see them on stage and then see him at IHOP the next day frail like he is now. And it's, it's, he shrank and it's just, it is, it is pretty wild. But, um, I, I do, I want to circle back before I let you go. Cause I, I do want to respect your time, but there's just a couple more things here with, um, first I want to touch on to kind of wrap up the peptides, you kind of mentioned they're, they, they're all kind of getting you to the same place, uh, maybe through different pathways and such. What would make somebody choose tesamorelin over ipamorelin if they're both doing the same thing? What, what would make somebody choose one over the other? Um, and for the people listening, who, who are people that 
maybe they should be looking into these things. Um, I, I don't want people to listen to it and just think it's cool science stuff. But like, I also want people to understand that there might be some people listening who could actually benefit from peptides, whether it is because of uh, deficiencies or uh, just optimizing or whatever it may be. Yeah, I apologize. You asked me that earlier and I, we jumped around the two tangents, <laughs> but uh, that's okay. There are certain advantages, for example, I mentioned with Samorlin, aside from the fact that they're all going to help you with endogenous production of, of uh, growth hormone, Samorlin tends to have an effect of uh, making you sleepy. So some people take it just because it works for insomnia and mm -hmm. has a nice side benefit. It's growth hormone enhancing. Uh, Ibutamorin, some people can, can tolerate the hunger effects. Most people do, I should say. Every once in a while, some will say, Doc, I wake up at two in the morning and I got to go raid the kitchen. Well, that's not a good, that's not a good thing, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. Um, if you're skinny and trying to put on weight, which again, would be another way to use Ibutamorin because it really helps with appetite. Um, uh, so you might take it not at night, but in the morning first thing, just to stimulate your appetite. But I guess what I'm getting at is different side effects that come with it. Some considered good, some considered bad. And that would determine your choice. Although I would say in my experience and also based upon the studies to date, Ibutamorin uh, is the hands down winner when it comes to the amount of growth hormone produced uh, of all the tools out there. I think that one is, uh, is, is you're going to get the best result if you're interested in, in raising growth hormone levels. Why would you, again, if you're, if you're doing things that are degenerative is a, is a really broad way of putting this, then the regenerative potential of growth hormone is for you. Uh, one classic example is if, uh, even if you're not, um, you know, working out seven days a week and pushing it and trying to be competitive still, what if God forbid you have to get a surgery for whatever reason, you know, it can help with healing, uh, surgical wound healing for sure. And let's say, God forbid you have to get a, a fusion. Well, you know, any orthopod who is, hip to this sort of thing, no pun intended, uh, we'll see that, uh, you know, the, 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 the x-ray, you know, you want to see lots of, they call it, you know, snow on there where you see the bone regrowth in the vertebra is it, definitely accelerated by the use of, uh, growth hormone enhancers. So, you know, there, there's a lot of practical reasons to use it. It's not just necessarily for, wow, I'm going to be better for it. I think the, uh, I think with all these, you're going to find that the, the, the jury's out. I don't think there's, I don't think the jury's ever going to come in and say, this is good for you, no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. um, um, you're always going to find, uh, I shouldn't say always, you're usually going to find exceptions. Uh, we might find some things that are generally good, but then you got to dig deeper. You got to say, okay, well, how does this fit into this individual's lifestyle goals, et cetera, that, that thing you said earlier about, you know, start with at least 30 questions. And then trying to figure out, uh, you know, if it's if it's apropos, and that goes into something I mentioned, uh, you know, in the book and, and earlier about, you know, the future of all this I think is going to be very Star Trekian, where you're going to have something akin to what Bones had on on Star Trek, you know, I guess they called it a tricorder, whatever it was, you know, wave it over, pick up on every conceivable available amount of data that we can get, and then using artificial intelligence assistance, I'm sure. Uh, come up with what is very, very specific to that individual for that moment, even. And and that's where I think it's a, it really gets exciting because I think we're heading that way. We have the tools. I think the biggest hindrance right now is we don't have the technology, contrary to what everyone might think, we don't have the technology to pick up the data. You know, these wearables, uh, you know, the iWatch, the Ura Ring, these things we wear and 
I love them all. You know, the old expression, garbage in, garbage out. They're, they're just still not precise enough to, to, to be accurate in a lot of cases. And of course, if they're really close to the beginning, but you're starting to extrapolate using the oil, you can go off in very opposite uh, directions. So I think we're waiting for a lot of that to, to come into play. And then I think the easier part is going to be the, the software, as it were, you know, the artificial intelligence to put it together. Yeah. But that's, that's, you know, that, that alone is, well, for me, it gets exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it absolutely is. This is why I told you at the beginning, I've been going down, I don't know if it was off air yet or what, but I've been going on rabbit holes online, just looking through stuff. And that's how I found your stuff. And it just started, uh, I just consumed more and more because it is very, very fascinating. And the whole idea of optimization fascinates me, let alone that it's the same trajectory that could also prevent disease and help people who are in serious need that don't just care about optimization, but they just want to survive and live better, you know? Um, so I, I do want to ask just one final question before we let you go. Um, and that's kind of tying the two together and know that I would love to have you back on to talk about hormone replacement therapy as a standalone podcast. Cause I don't want to set you up for, you know, yeah. it's, that's a whole, it's a whole, uh, podcast in itself, but, um, are any of these peptides, uh, going to help with that? I guess my, my question is, is, you know, testosterone replacement therapy has been something that has become more and more popular. Um, I'm definitely for it when it's in need. I think that I've talked to a lot of male clients that come to me and say, Hey, like, what are your thoughts? My doctor suggested it. And a lot of times I try to tell them, you know, there's a lot of hormone based medications that are totally accepted by the public without a bat of the eye. But testosterone is usually frowned upon because they think of steroids, even though it's just one small piece of the whole steroid umbrella. And it's in a regular dosage, not a super physiological dose, like you mentioned. Um, but if a doctor's prescribing it, then that's going to help your life, then you should do it, you know? And so my question is, is our peptides moving in a way that would prevent somebody from needing that? Because I got to imagine if peptides help your natural production increase, that would probably be better than TRT if there was a peptide that helped increase your natural production. I, I mean, I imagine there's situations where you have no choice but to go on TRT, but um, I'm curious if there, those peptides do exist. They do. And it boils down to, again, that concept of you know, primary hypogonadism versus secondary. So with primary hypogonadism, the problem is the testicles just are not functioning anymore. And you can send a signal all you want all day long, and they're going to send you back the, 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 that finger saying, hey, dude, we're done. And, you know, you go into as many theories as you want. I always say, look, 300 years ago, life expectancy was closer to 30, 35 years, right? And so uh, if you follow, you know, the purpose of evolution is to, to, to procreate, arguably, if you hadn't conceived by the time you were 15, what's the point of Mother Nature giving you the ability to do so after that time? Because you won't be around to, you know, help. The, the odds of your offspring surviving are, are pretty slim. Now you say, well, okay, but humans stuck together, and that's true. So then double that. You're dead at 30, uh, you know, 35, which, by the way, by age 35, paraandropause and paramenopause begin. And that's just a fancy way of saying, you know, your hormones start to drop off. If you look at it from that perspective, whether that's completely baloney or not, I, you know, we'll never know, I guess. But uh, it, it does make some sense anyway. Um, and so at some point, like I say, talking to the testicles, trying to mimic luteinizing hormone, the, the hormone that comes from the pituitary to the, the, the gonad, whether it's the ovaries and females or the testicles and males, uh, all that release in the world is just not going to have an effect. Uh, I believe in, in, since I've been doing this, uh, there, there's other things that come into play because I've seen people who are 30 
being treated for secondary hypogonadism and the levels of testosterone are still relatively high when they come in for a visit and say, doc, the wheels have fallen off the wagon. Yes, I see my levels are still high, but something's gone wrong here. So it may have something to do with uh, more than just with testosterone levels that occur and, and they're being endogenous and, and, and physiologic. There may be a need to go super physiologic to get the same sort of benefit. So that, that you know, it's not quite as simple as uh, certainly we like to make it. But for those cases of secondary hypogonadism where the testicles or the, the ovaries are still working, uh, we have a peptide uh, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, which is derived from, uh, well, it used to be derived from, from pregnant uh, women's urine. Now we can synthesize it in the lab. Uh, but it's, an, uh, it's, it's so close to luteinizing hormone that I just mentioned, we actually call it a homologue rather than analog. And uh, that can be used to, to override the system, as it were, to make the, the, the gonads produce testosterone. There's also another peptide called kispeptin, which uh, is just more of a pain in the butt. It goes uh, to the hypothalamus. It starts there rather than the pituitary and sends a signal through gonadotropin-releasing hormone, uh, and this analog. Uh, to 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 make uh, uh, the luteinizing hormone and then the testicles and, and ovaries do their job, but that one's like you know typically four or more injections per day. So you can see how it doesn't have a lot of favor right now, but with a little more study in the lab, we might find that kispeptin, uh, uh, you know, with a with one ligand that makes it last longer, will be the the answer in the future. You know, cheap and easy. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's uh, it's mind blowing how many of these are being developed and how, as you're explaining one, it's like, well, you know, there's this other one, and then it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. I think that the the, I hope and and I think that the future of, um, longevity and, and optimization and just thriving instead of surviving is is peptides and and it's uh more of this is being more and more commonly accepted and well-known and it's just such a such a cool topic so um, again i'd love to have you on to talk about hormones separately because i think that is a very misunderstood topic but um, i'm going to respect your time for today and, and i'm glad that we were able to go over all the peptides and um, i know you'll blow the audience away with how much information you give and you and you educate in a really simple way so it makes it easy to understand um, so thank you first and foremost and, and secondly your book since we didn't just talk about that and for people listening the book is is you can go check it out on Amazon and see what it's about and see the title. And um, I, I can guarantee there's even some podcasters who uh, left reviews on the book that a lot of you listeners will actually um, see. I know I believe Sal Stefano was one of the people that left a good review and I heard you on their podcast on Mind Pump. A lot of our listeners know who they are. I've spoken at a couple events with them as well. Um, so really, really good stuff. But tell everybody uh, what the book is, when it's out, because I think by the time this airs, it'll be either like the day before or day after. So this is right around the same time, but the day it's out, where they can get it, what it's called, all that real quick. So we can put it in the show notes for everybody to go grab. Yeah, no, it's easy. Like I say, it's cheating death. This behind me here was sent me by my publisher, Ben Bella, so that everyone can see what the book looked like. Um, and then we, uh, we, we, we share the, uh, the, the book, um, look but uh amazon i i think is where most people will go for what they call a pre-sale and you can get it anytime you want and then it gets released on the 7th i believe there are lots of different outlets you know barnes and noble and and the whole slew of them like any other book uh but yeah i mean i i don't know what more to say uh but thank you i i would more, be more than happy to jump on with this as 
hope it comes across. I love this stuff, whether the book sells or not. I mean, the idea of selling the book is is really the, the whole idea behind it was to spread the word. So whether the book's involved or the podcasts are involved, as long as we get the word out, you know, that, that's most important. And yeah, you happen to choose one of my favorites, peptides, but there's always, there's so many other um, avenues available to improve your health span. That that's the real purpose of all this stuff, right? We're on, you and I are on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's key. It's, you know, to enable someone to thrive if they want to. Yep. You know, not everybody wants to, I get it, but I, I, I just believe it. I, maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but I think most people if given the opportunity, you know, and really believe it would choose, Hey, let's thrive. I mean, might as well, we're here. Yep. Let's make the most of it. Right. Yep. I'm, I'm 100% with you. And that's why I was happy to have you on. So, um, we'll put your website, the link to the Amazon, all that in the description. I'm also going to put some links to follow, uh, Dr. Rand on social media. And, uh, I'm just going to advise you because, uh, so much content is on YouTube of him. That's not necessarily his channel, but just countless interviews that you can find with him online. So go to YouTube, search his name. You will find a ton. The, the mind pump podcast he did are fantastic. So I'm going to link a bunch of stuff in the show notes for you guys, as well as the book, um, which by the time you listen to this is about to drop or it just dropped. Cause this is going to air right around that same time. So, um, thank you once again for spending the time with us. We appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, we'll be, we'll be in touch very soon. Look forward to it. And thank again, thank you.